The best relationships are built on learnable skills. The question becomes, are you willing to learn? Join John and Sungshim Lopnow as they converse with leaders at the intersection of brain science and spiritual formation with practical ways of staying connected to the presence of God and to one another. We hope that the Presence and Practice podcast serves you and other leaders around the world with tangible ways to increase love in every interaction. And now, to tell you more about today's episode, here's John and Sungshim. This was a really great conversation with Ken. And we just kept talking and were engaged and the fruit of the conversation was so rich that I decided to let it flow and divide it into two episodes. So you're going to listen to the first one here and then part two is the next episode. I hope you enjoy. This is John Lapno with Presence in Practice and I'm so glad to be here with Ken Baugh. And um, we're going to talk about your new book and your ministry and what's on your heart and I understand this is your third book, your first solo book, but it's called here. Let me just show, show everyone who's watching it. It's Unhindered Abundance, Restoring Our Souls in a Fragmented World. And it's cool. I like the cover. I like the book. You know, it's, I like books. So it's, it's a nice book to look at and hold. The contents are great. So we're going to get into that. But just, um, I mean, you've done a lot with your life, and we could say, you know, you have like Rick Warren endorsing this, Jim Wilder, people would know that. Just tell us like a snapshot of your journey of how Ken got to here so that the people who don't know you get to know you just a little bit. Yeah, thanks, John. It's great being, it's great being with you. I really appreciate us getting the opportunity to reconnect. Unhindered Abundance is the culmination of 30 plus years of ministry experience and 46 years of being a follower of Jesus. So it really comes out of my own life, my own process, my own journey. And Mm -hmm. my, you know, kind of a, the narrative that that goes through the book is really uh, looking at that. So the interesting thing is, is that I've gone through a couple of difficult seasons of life. One was in 2014 when I was terminated from my position as senior pastor. And that time frame, I was actually right in the middle of writing my dissertation. Oh, wow. Which is titled Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And the irony is that I kind of became a client of my own work. Yeah, in that, it's in almost that like, thank God you were writing that book. Yeah. So, well, the book actually didn't come until after all that. So the book, the book Unhindered Abundance is the fruit of my, my doctoral work, mm-hmm. but uh, it was, it was the rigors of writing that dissertation in the midst of the stress and the hurt and the, really the trauma mm-hmm. that resulted from the termination. Yes. Yes. And I'm, I'm, I mean, that book kind of could probably point you in the right direction. You're immersed in it. And then I think, I don't know if that's, I met you a little bit after that with uh, Bill Galtier of Soul right. Shepherding. Yeah. And they do a great ministry. And I know we've received the fruit of them too. And just like we're, we're brothers and sisters in this journey, sharing our stories, supporting and encouraging each other. And this is the fruit of your journey and wrestling and pain and joy and all of that coming together. So you've been a local church pastor for a bunch 20, of 25 years, 25 years. Yeah. 
And then, so 2014 is when I transitioned into my own coaching discipleship ministry. Wow. And what's the name of that? So people can know and and look it up. Yeah. It's the Institute for Discipleship Training uh, or IDTministries.com. Okay. And so we've been, so I've been doing that now for the last six years and largely uh, coaching uh, Christian businessmen and mentoring and encouraging pastors. And so it's been, it's been a great journey. Uh, it's, it's been a very different pace than mm. local church ministry. I don't think you realize how exhausted you are just getting from Sunday to Sunday. Yeah. And it really, the, the founding pastor of the church that I succeeded in, he said it took him three years to recover. Wow. And so, and then he had been, so he had founded the church and had been there for, I think, 18 years before uh, he retired and I took over from him. And then Mm -hmm. I was there for 10 and a half years and coming out of a ministry from Washington, D.C., which was very demanding and time intensive. I loved it. Don't get me wrong, but Mm -hmm. the, just the rigors of ministry and the the pace that you have to run at, well, maybe you don't have to, but the pace that I chose to run at really was exhausting yeah. and ultimately led up to my burnout, and mm. which culminated in my termination and all kinds of pain and difficulty. Yes. And that is painful. And yes, you're right. You There's choices we make when we're pastors and senior pastors, but then there is the system which sort of, if you're in the system, there's a level of demand. Either you're, you, you have enough power to shift it or you don't. And yeah, and I found out I didn't. <laughs> I did yes. not have enough power to shift it. Because my goal was to make discipleship hmm. the main thing, right? And I can't think of any better mission for hmm. the local church than to make disciples. I think somebody we follow said something about that at one point. Somebody, well, like... Well, Jesus, and then yeah, there you go. And even people that we respect and follow, like Dallas Willard and yes. Wilder, and you and I, and Bill and Christy, and yeah, like discipleship. So, I want since you made this point, what happens in your typical church that made you have the focus of I want discipleship to be the focus of the local church? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, my whole ministry really is built on Ephesians 4, equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. So discipleship in a variety of different forms has has always been um, my emphasis. It would just take on uh, a different form from, you know, uh, to preaching and teaching, to meeting with people, pastoral counseling, to Mm -hmm. writing. Uh, So it would take various forms. And it really wasn't until uh, as a senior pastor, I was really struggling with the lack of transformation people mm-hmm. were experiencing and the level of frustration that they had, that they were verbalizing when they'd mm-hmm. come into my office and how stuck they felt. And it really started me thinking, why are people who, are, who love Jesus, they have you know, no desire to act out in addiction and destructive and sinful behavior. And yet they find themselves more often 
moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I just, and I have, I have uh, a strong background in psychology from my, uh, my master's work. And I just was kind of putting two and two together and just going, you know, I need, I need to get some more mm-hmm. robust theological training and understanding of what's going on here. And that's what led me to my doing my uh, doctorate in discipleship at Talbot. It was really coming out of this. If I, if I'm going to follow what I believe God calling me to do, which is make discipleship the main thing, I want to get a, a, a little more training in what that might look like mm-hmm. and how I might be able to bring that about. And I was reading Dallas and, and a lot of these other writers and I'm trying to integrate you know, these, these worlds, which my dissertation really with the, what, what ended up as I really was focused on three disciplines, theology, psychology, and neurology, mm. trying to bring those together in a way that would explain and give a process for helping people not only grow in Christ, but get unstuck. Mm. That's, that's a beautiful vision. And I want to have one question that's in the direction of the system and the vision of the local church on average, and then we'll get to like your response to that. If the, if the church, if the average local church is not, I'm not talking about any specific ones, although if, if specific ones feel the challenge and invitation, great. That's cause that's my heart too. Uh, what's, what does the system of the local church, what's the vision and why is it not discipleship? So not, I don't, we don't have to answer why for them, but just what, what is their behavioral goal evidence? Some of it, John, is driven by just the realities of, of ministry. It costs money. And so the metrics tend to be, even if they're unspoken metrics, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, depends on the church, the board of elders you're working with, are really around attendance, baptisms, how many people do we have in small groups? How many people do we have serving? How many people are going on mission trips? What's the giving like? And those are all the metrics from which we usually try to assess the spiritual level of maturity in our congregation. Mm-hmm. I've never been a part of a church, I'm sad to say, that was trying to measure spiritual growth by my growing capacity to love. Amen. And and. And I'm not throwing rocks. I'm just saying, how in the world did we get so far away from what Jesus actually called us to do and to be? The other challenge, I think, for churches is programs really uh, drive a lot of the local church ministry. Mm-hmm. When And no, no church that you or I have ever been a part of is going to be down on discipleship they're just going to have a different way of thinking about it. So, and I think that's fair that there's different elements that contribute to discipleship. Right. But one of the things I've tried to do in unhindered abundance and in my doctoral work is really define more clearly what is discipleship Mm -hmm. and how does that take place? Which really brought me to, from a theological standpoint to progressive sanctification Mm -hmm. and if discipleship, spiritual formation, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, whatever, words or phrase you want to use to describe that, they're all pointing to the same goal, which is becoming more like yeah. Jesus, right? Yeah. Second Corinthians 3.18. And so that was the umbrella, if you will, that I wanted to put everything so that we would measure why we, we would measure what we do and why we do it. Mm. 
with the ultimate goal of we want to be catalysts and help facilitate for our people mm-hmm. this growing in Christ. What does that look like? How does that take place? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in that? Then what is what is my role then as a uh, as a believer? And that's where Dallas's work, I think, was so instructive because when he started talking about grace as opposed to earning, but not to effort, right. now we have a whole different paradigm, which it, it truly is for a lot of people. Because anytime they, you're doing something, they're like oh, getting nervous. Oh, well, what about grace? And, you know, is this legalism? Is this, you know, some kind of meritorious uh, works orientation to righteousness? And it's not that at all. It's, it's Philippians 3, work out your salvation, not work for it, mm-hmm. but work it out. Yeah. And so th- that's kind of the background, I guess, if, if you will, of what kind of brought me to, to all of that. And what I like about your book is I could see in, in the conversations I had when I was a pastor full-time, bringing this to the pastoral table saying, what does discipleship mean? Let's talk about it here. Let's read this book together and talk about it with the pastors and the elders and deacons and the board. Of, and then also small group leaders or the the person sitting there who's like, oh, I just want to grow. I've been going to church for 10, 20, 30 years or more. And I don't know how to get some like traction. And I'm doing all the things church asking me to do. Like you said, come on Sunday, serve, mission trips, small group. But I'm I'm feeling stuck, like you say. And so I could give it to both the leaders and the person who is a faithful follower of Jesus at the local church. Yeah, and I really hope too, John, that it can be a resource for pastors as well to give pastors the permission to be human and to be real and give them a way of understanding that theologically mm. that doesn't make it sound like a bunch of psychobabble. Because you and I, you and I come from more of a psychological understanding of the world, right? Our worldview includes. Uh, a lot of that, partly because of our training, partly because of our ministry and so forth. But for a lot of pastors and for a lot of elders, mm. it is, it's really scary. And so when you start talking about even the phrase spiritual formation, I would get pushback on that all the time. I would get pushback even using a word like meditation because of its association mm-hmm. with new age. And so part of what led to my undoing at my, at, uh, the church where I was senior pastor is I wasn't careful enough when introducing these things mm. to use words and phrases that didn't trigger an alarm. Yes. If I had it to do over again, I would be much more careful. Mm. And I, and so typically even in my book, I talk about discipleship because that's a word that people feel comfortable with. It's something that is familiar. Even if we don't have a universal definition of what that is, I, which I don't think we do, I don't even think we have a universal definition of who is a disciple, right? I mean, if you go in a room with 10 pastors and say, what is discipleship and what constitutes the disciple? Are they made? Are they born? You know, <laughs> you'd probably get 10 different answers. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, even the, it would be a fun episode of just let's go and talk through the core words of disciple, discipleship, yes. gospel, grace, yeah. salvation, you know, these, those core words, let's go back to the essence of like wrestle with it rather than just like we're using them and then they kind of lose their flavor and, and distinctiveness. And so, yeah, I'm totally on board with you. And yeah, 
I think I've made some of those same mistakes about like, I mean, meditation is in the Bible, you know, like (laughs) it's in the Bible. So why are we scared of that word? And, and so, so I, I think I've kind of made some of those same mistakes and well, well, I know we could talk about so many things and what's, tell me how you integrate it and what has been interesting for you as a person and seeing the effect on people that you work with. And then the ideas in the book about like neuroscience, theology, psychology, all those things like that, that, that realm, what has been actually helpful to you and the people you pass it on to? You know, one of the things that, that I think people are discovering more and more, and I'm finding this just in my coaching practice and pastoral counseling, that it's a lot of people really compartmentalize. And they, they refer to it as like, I have a spiritual life and I have a secular life. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand that God created us as whole beings mm-hmm. and our material and immaterial self interact and affect one another. Yeah. And so I, have a, I, do, I do quite a bit of uh, unpacking theology throughout mm-hmm. the book and in, in, in Unhindered Abundance. And one of those dynamics I talk about is just really a theology of the soul mm-hmm. so that we can have a understanding at the very basic level that I have an immaterial self, which is my inner being, which the mm-hmm. Bible refers most often to as the heart. Mm-hmm. And then I have a material self, which is our bodies. And both that material and material interact with each other. And so, for example, if I'm feeling depressed or anxious, that's going to have a biological effect in my brain that's going to re- release uh, adrenaline cortisol, right? If it's If it's a stress response to a situation, which is going to affect heart rates, can affect blood pressure. It's going to affect all. So those two things work, you know, in, in, in synchronicity with each other. And so to help people understand that and look at it from a holistic standpoint, uh, has been very interesting. And I think eye opening for a lot of people to, to go, Oh, everything as a believer, everything in my life, is to be ex- it's to be expressed as a follower of Jesus that it that my being a follower of Jesus should inform my home life my marriage my parenting my business life my work life my you know personal life when i'm driving or when i'm impatient at the grocery store cuz it's taking too long or the barista at starbucks and so i think really looking at it from a character formation standpoint mm. Mm-hmm. That was the big switch for me, and that was that was where the neuroscience, the exploring the neuroscience, really started helping me get a better understanding of oh, okay, here is an intersection between, for just lack of a better term, the head and the heart, if you will, yeah. that I had never explored before, mm. and it was really fascinating. And I think that's so good because sometimes. Once you've been down that road for so long and it's been a while, you forget what it's like to kind of make that transition. Yes. And so I think your journey can be like a, you can be like a Sherpa, you know, leading in a shepherd. People through that, that journey and that integration of, you know, yeah, like driving or, or even, I mean, I guess spouse would be a little bit easier because scripture talks about like loving your spouse but sometimes your spouse can really annoy you and irritate you. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe not yours, but um, <laughs> I irritate my wife plenty of times. Yes. So. I would probably put that shoe on the other foot. I do the <laughs> same thing. I irritate my wife plenty of times. 
No, and I think it's, I mean, let's just take something as simple as the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. That's mm-hmm. where we stop. Mm-hmm. When was the last time, John, you heard a sermon on how to love yourself? Yes. It's that's just so- not, in our, that's not in our theology. Yeah. And yet it's right there embedded in the great commandment. Yes. So we have created these sacred cows and we've created these places where that are taboo hmm. or we've labeled them as, well, that's just humanistic or that's just psychobabble or that's just, that's not biblical. And, and I just, I really struggle with that simplistic thinking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets me even thinking about, um, how people view Jesus. I think people view Jesus like Superman, like, right. you know what I mean? He like, he's human, but then he has capacities. We don't, but that's actually an invitation. And my mentor, Edwards Antenna Grace says, we can learn to be human. Like Jesus was human in co- conversation with the father reliance on the Holy spirit and look at the practices that he's done. And yes. that's like an invitation and an open possibility for us. Yes. And because he was human. Well, and I think, you know, Paul goes as far as say he was the prototype of the perfect human, right? Yes. Yes. So it's possible, John, and I, I, you know, I want to be careful with this, but, you know, Jesus was 100% human and Mm -hmm. 100% God, 100% divine. Yes. I don't think, though, that he cheated, if you will, with his divinity to get through the rough spots. Exactly. That's the Superman comment, right? Yes. I think he, it was his being filled with the spirit and his dependence upon the father that is the same that is available to us. Mm. So we have access, right? John 17 is that we have been invited. And this is one of Dallas's terms into the Trinitarian community. And we have been given the mind of Christ. We have the power of the spirit within us. Mm-hmm. Jesus had all of those things. So part of my, and one of the reasons for the title Unhindered Abundance is because there is so much more that is available to us in Christ Mm -hmm. than I think most people dream is even possible. And that most people, even if they have a a superficial idea or understanding of the abundant life, Mm -hmm. would just say, well, that's either a pipe dream or if it's true, then I got to wait till I die and go to heaven to experience that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When people are like, I'm like, no, like, and, and yes, it's progressive and it's yes. and it bumps along the way. Absolutely. I know the journey, but if we limit ourselves until death to experience abundance, then we're not tasting what Jesus came to reveal. Well, and I like, I like to talk about the abundant life as being characterized by things like the fruit of the spirit, right? Mm-hmm. As well as, so that would be the character of Christ. It's not limited to the fruit of the spirit because there's other, there's other fruit that was manifest in Jesus' life wasn't in that specific list, but also the quality of life that Jesus experienced. Mm. So discipleship then is taking on the character of Christ that is progressive, right? None of us need, as Dallas would say, we, none of us need to worry about becoming Jesus in this life. <laughs> but we can make progress. Yes. So it's taking on that character, becoming the kind of person, for example, mm-hmm. that chooses to love their enemies. Yeah. Becoming the kind of person that is able to drive in the slow lane on the freeway without wanting to get homicidal. <laughs> uh, and experiencing the quality of life that Jesus experienced while he was on earth, meaning that 
he wasn't rushed. He wasn't tyrannized by everybody's mm. expectations of him. He wasn't a people pleaser. Uh, he lived. He lived a rhythm in relationship with the father. He was secure in his identity as the son. His role as son, right? Equally God, but his his role as son, to which the father affirmed a number of times in the Gospels, two specifically at the baptism and then on Mount Transfiguration. And I don't think that was just an accident. I think Jesus in his humanity needed that affirmation of the father as the son. We in Christ are sons and daughters of God. Jesus is our big brother. And that sounds heretical to say that out loud, but it's what it's true. It's what it's what Paul teaches. It's it's right there in scripture. Yeah, actually I take great comfort in like camaraderie thinking of Jesus as my big brother. And and, yeah. and it's theologically grounded, you know. Yes. It, but it and there's a different experience that I have with him as my big brother who I can learn from and be with. And I know I can learn from and be with a king. It has, it has a different impact and effect. And he has all those things. Yes. And, and that is, and interestingly, I was meditating on a hike this morning on Colossians three, which is talking about, I mean, I know that's one of Dallas's favorite, mm-hmm. but it's, it's that take, put that off and put this on and love is the supreme virtue to be putting on where that's yes. kind of where you started early on to know that that's a possibility. And one question I want to ask you is, and this I think can integrate neuroscience, theology, psychology is meditating, meditating on anything, but meditating on scripture. Maybe I even say this in my intro to this question. I would say we're always meditating in, in, in the process. It's just, what's the focus of our content? Yeah. Is it like how bad I am, which I can do that. If I I've meditated like, Oh, I fail at that. I'm not good at that. What does the role of meditating on scripture play in this formation and, and how do you integrate the theology and the neuroscience? Yeah. Well, let's, let's just talk about a couple uh, aspects of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the premise that the brain grows and changes throughout life, that it's not fixed. And that's a fairly new understanding of the brain. I would say within the last 20 years or so mm-hmm. that's, and then there's two aspects. So neuroplasticity is a big topic. Two aspects of that that I think are pertinent to your question are, the first one is called Hebb's theory or Hebb's law, which is summed up in the phrase neurons that fire together, wire together. So Hebb was a Canadian psych- psychiatrist and he, uh, his theory is that the more you think about something, the, the, the denser that thought becomes or the more... Uh, deeply rooted it becomes in your brain so that ultimately it becomes a, your default. If you think yeah. about something enough, it, the way I describe it in the book is it's like driving on a muddy road. If a hundred cars drive on a muddy road, those ruts are going to get deep. And then when the sun comes out, dries that up. If you drive now into those ruts, they're hard to steer out of. Yeah. So the same principle applies in as we are thinking a certain thought over and over and over again, that uh, becomes our default. And what's interesting, and I go into great detail on this in the book, is that the heart, both Old Testament and New Testament, talking about the heart as our inner being, specifically as what's pointing to, is composed of three dynamics, thought, emotion, and will. 
Mm-hmm. And all three of those, I liken them, the illustration I use is, is gears, like in a transmission. When you are thinking a thought, mm-hmm. that is affecting how you're feeling, yeah. which affects your choices you make, which is your will, that ultimately then drive behavior. Now, we know that there are right brain dynamics, too, that drive behavior that are even faster than thought. We can, mm-hmm. we can come back to that, but let's just stay on this track for a second. And so the only thing that we have been given direct control over is our thinking. Mm-hmm. You can't control your feelings directly. You mm-hmm. can't just say, be happy and, and you know, be authentically happy. Right. We can, though, affect our feelings indirectly by what we choose to think about. Mm-hmm. So if I choose to believe that I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, mm-hmm. that's going to have an effect on my emotions, which is going to affect my will. That's going to then play itself out of my behavior. If I focus my thinking on the truth of God's word instead of the lies of Satan, that I am a saint. Mm-hmm. I am a saint who occasionally sins, if you will, right? That we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness now. So yeah. it's not that as a saint, I don't sin. It's that I don't have to sin. Whereas prior to that, you're, you're a slave to sin. So if I am focusing my thinking on what is true, mm-hmm. like let's take, for example, your identity in Christ, right? That you are a son of God, that you are an co-heir with Christ, that you are the beloved of God, that you are one in whom Christ dwells. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a whole list of our identity passages that I use as exercises throughout the book. That is going to, let's just go back to Heb's law. I'm thinking about those truths over and over and over again. Yes. Those things now are going to affect how I feel. That's going to affect my choices. That's going to play out in its behavior. Hmm. So that thinking over and over again is the second aspect of neuroplasticity, which is called either attention density or the quantum Zeno effect, which essentially is the more you pay attention to something, it kind of holds it in place, if you will, so that Hebb's theory can take place. Yes. I so, love, I love that you integrated the quantum Zeno effect. I think you might be the first first uh, guest I have who used those words. <laughs> but I think it's it's actual science based in right. physics, based yes. in what you observe has a huge impact. You know, and I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. So what we're observing and we're paying attention to, the uh, Christ dwells and delights in me and yes. in him. And I observe that and I pay attention to it. And of course, you know, I'm thinking about as a therapist and your pastoral counseling uh, traumas and hurts and pains and feeling alone in times when we didn't feel that and our identity was shaped by other things. There's hope and healing for those things. And it's, it is embedded in being welcomed into the, the fellowship and the community of love between the father, son, Holy spirit, and a brother or sister or brothers and sisters. So I just, my mind just went like, yes. Like, so we need each other to pay attention. Absolutely. Well, and that's a big, big part of the transformation process is that I don't believe we can do it alone. I believe it is the context of all change is healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to the garden. I think that is the, the theology of relationship really, to me, is grounded in being created in the image and likeness of God. 
part of what that means, right? That means a lot of things, but part of what that means is that I am a relational being because God is a relational being. Yes. He exists as a triune being. His small group is the Trinity for goodness sake. So that means that I need in order to thrive, I need a relationship with God. And I have that now through Christ. He's my Abba, right? So now he's my daddy. And now he's Jesus, my big brother. Mm-hmm. And then I have a relationship with other believers mm-hmm. who are also filled with the spirit, who are my brothers and my sisters. So it gives me the safe, hopefully the safe place, right? Which sadly, I don't think most of our local churches are the safe places that they could be yeah. for, for us. But uh, relationship is, is essential to this, to this process. One last thing, though, John, before we move into that direction, uh, all that we just talked about, about thinking and focusing on your identity crescent, that atten- all attention density is, or the quantum Zeno effect, is meditation. Yeah, yes. That's all it is. It's the scientific understanding of meditation is the more you think about something over and over and over again, it's going to affect you, which is probably why Jesus told us to not worry about things because worry is just rehearsing negative thoughts over and over and over again. And of course, Jesus knows how the brain works. He created us. And so he is instructing us in the way to live and thrive as he designed us to live and thrive. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think that psychology, neurology, uh, philosophy, sociology, I-, I think all of those, all the sciences can inform us yeah. in our discipleship to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's, so I actually put all of those things under the umbrella of general revelation. Yeah. And so I see the, the, the marrying of special revelation scripture with general revelation, the sciences, I don't see a, con- a conflict there. Now, certainly it's going to depend on how you interpret that. And yes, there is real humanism and there's all, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that we can go off the rails biblically with the sciences. Mm-hmm. But I do think that they can inform us if we are discerning, if we are biblically informed and, uh, and there's lots of great resources out there to help us do that. And in, in community, you know, even when we get sense or an impression from the Holy Spirit, we don't just run off with it. You know, we, we embed it in relationship, in, in being informed by what scripture says, what our wise counsel says. So same with, you know, like science, how we interpret that and experience that. Exactly. It's embedded in community and the wisdom and counsel of scripture and older brothers and sisters or wiser brothers and sisters. They're not always older, although that's common, you know, they're, they're right. but I love it. And, and what, what's a, since you've been doing pastoral counseling and even pastoring for a long time, what's like a go-to verse or scripture that is something that you've seen produce fruit that gives people a little traction. You know I mean? There's tons of scripture and we resonate different things at different times, but what's like a handle, like you see like, Oh, this seems to be helpful to people and gives them like a focal point in this moment. So there's two things. One is kind of a topical thing. The other is more uh, specific from a topical standpoint, John, my experience is 
a lot of believers really have a misunderstanding of the character and nature of God. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand grace and they don't understand love. If we were to actually open our hearts to all the love that God is pouring in, because I think he gives us that choice. It's, I, I, I'm really into photography, so I liken it to an aperture. Mm. He's given us the opportunity to, to open the aperture of our heart oh, yeah. to receive all the love that he is, ha, is pouring into our direction. Mm. He doesn't overwhelm us with that. Mm-hmm. And he woos us, he invites us, he gives us uh, the ability to experience. And then when we act on that, he gives us more and so forth. So correcting our distortions of, of God is a really big deal in my, in my mind. In fact, A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite authors. And he says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that what you, th- what you choose to think about God is the, act, the most important thing about you. He says that we choose by an active working of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Yes. And so, of course, Jesus even said that when you see me, you see the Father. So the way that we know the Father is through the Son. And so he's that example. So as we are reading and studying and meditating and memorizing on Jesus' words, that is going to help from the, from the neuroplasticity standpoint we talked about, that's going to help rewire my thinking about who God is. It's not based upon my distortions. It's based mm-hmm. upon truth. Mm-hmm. So that would be the topical side of it. Yeah. From a specific scriptural side of it, you already mentioned it. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Mm-hmm. That was one of Dallas's big passages. So my, Susan and I, uh, a number of years ago, said, well, if it's good enough for Dallas, it's good enough for us. And so we started memorizing that. And John, I would say to you, I go over that passage in my mind, if it's not every day, mm. multiple times a day, it's, it's every other day. I, I've been meditating on that passage for five years, Colossians wow. 3, 1 through 17. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's worthy of that kind of depth and the, the, the density that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, James Bryan Smith wrote a whole book on Colossians 3, 1 through 17, you know, so it kind of serves as a commentary, which I really encourage people when they're memorizing scripture. I'm an advocate of memorizing large portions of scripture for a number of reasons, not the least of which it's harder to take something out of context if you're memorizing it in the passage. But it's also the way the Holy Spirit has uh, inspired the word for us to understand. It's, 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 It's hard I would say it's easy to make mistakes with scripture when we're just pulling passages from all over the place. So there's a natural flow in the thinking process. And it's actually easier in my experience to memorize passages than it is to memorize a hundred single verses. And Susan, my wife, uh, a few years ago decided to memorize the book of Ephesians. And so she did all six chapters. And if she were sitting here right now, she would say, I could never do that. But she she did it in two years through flashcards and repetition. And I got to tell you, John, uh, Susan has sexual abuse in her background and she's worked super hard in her own recovery. So we've been married for 35 years. And the changes that I saw in her as a result of, of that meditating on scripture was profound. Wow. So God's word is living and active. We know that. And it, 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 it will do its work in our hearts. It is not just information. It's supernatural information. Yes. That is so beautiful and encouraging and inspiring, both Susan's journey, your journey, and then the, 
the density that can come around the living word of God and how that forms us and shapes us. Because I, I know how our minds and brains work. It's like the hurt and trauma that happens and we go over there and sometimes we dwell over there because we're tired and, and we're in a tough moment. But then if we have something to come back to, a source of life, you know, a cool drink of water, it yeah. can nourish us and heal us and in the, in, in, in community. And so it's, thank you for sharing that, that story. That's, that is inspiring and, and beautiful to be just even hear how simple meditation, although she took it very seriously. Yeah. She and, did. And, and, and anytime you take something seriously, you will reap the rewards of it, whatever it is. Right. You no. Know? And that hopefully over time, over life, we gain in wisdom that, the things that we're spending that amount of time and density is actually reaping rewards that have fruit that is sweet to taste, healing and hopeful, and leads us to become more loving kinds of people. I hope you enjoyed this first part of a two-part conversation with Ken. And may we become the kind of people who know that God is always with us in a compassionate and loving, powerful way. We can be filled with that spirit, experience it ourselves, and be a blessing for others. May you be filled with the love and peace of Christ Jesus.